Daniel, Denise, it's such a pleasure to welcome you back to the Lyric Concert and, uh, and to RT Lyric FM and to what has been really an extraordinary couple of weeks because I was thinking as we were preparing this and, and, and actually recording last week's concert that I don't actually remember a time when we've had an artist such as yourself for a sort of greedy double two weeks, which is a mini residency <laughs> in many ways, and all the possibilities that that can offer and what makes that unique and unusual. And uh, as I was watching you last week begin this residency, if you want to put it that way, it reminded me of how when we last spoke, which was much near the beginning of your career, and we think of the beginning of your career, there are one or two real landmark performances that stand out. One of the things that people always talk about you uh, in connection with it is that groundbreaking production of Giulio Cesare, the Handel Giulio Cesare at Glyndebourne, a Baroque opera, which kind of swept a broom through the operatic cupboard and saw a completely different kind of interpretation, particularly in the Baroque repertoire, and you were at the helm of that. One of the things that people latched on to straight away was your incredible ability to do so many things as well as give a, an operatic performance. You could move in a way that people were not used to seeing on the operatic stage, and you've become known for it. Now, on starting this uh, repertoire, as, as you come to us now, some years later, everything seems to have really moved on in many ways. And here you are doing something with the Poulenc that you began the programme with, La Via Humaine, the human voice, that has you on stage with none of the artifice of the operatic uh, scene that can comfort you. There you are with a text, an incredibly complex Jean Cocteau text, a quite frenetic store, score by Poulenc, and it's you six feet away from the audience and nothing else. Well, thank you so much for having me, first of all. I'm so thrilled to be here and to always return to Ireland and this incredible audience here, as well as these uh, wonderful moments that I've had together with the Lyric FM. It's just, it's been very special. It's lovely to see you again. And yeah, to begin this residency of sorts, it is a sort of residency. And um, what it means is, is that you don't kind of zip in and out. I've actually been here for lots of press, lots of promotion, lots of basically shouting and with, with lots of excitement about all the wonderful things that we do here in the season. There's, there's lots of beautiful, enriching ways for us to cross-pollinate, actually. And that, that's what's been the joy of these last two weeks. Yes, Julius Caesar was an incredible moment. I, I feel like you're very fortunate in any métier if you have a sort of iconic moment that just bursts you yes. up to a different level. And, and Julius Caesar was really... You know, I, I used to joke at the time it was like uh, what Titanic was to Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. It was my, it was my Titanic. It was this iconic show that, that I was a part of that so many ingredients came together to make something that had just never been seen in that way before and really blew the socks off of everybody, including us, including us. And that was that was tremendously special to be a part of. It's a cast bond that we have. It sort of doesn't matter if we don't see each other for 15, 20 years. We'll always have a little glint in our eyes about this shared David experience. David was the director then, wasn't he? So David, it? yes. Andrew George was the choreographer. Um, and, you know, lifelong friendships were formed as well. So in addition to there being this amazing buzz, um, which I've never experienced at Glanbourne in the way that it was that first time. I mean, the buzz was so extreme that 
we had colleagues popping in to watch our rehearsals from other shows. I mean, that's never allowed, let alone happens, you know. So it was it was just, um, it was so unusual, you know, to be out in the countryside in Glenburn and people from New York reading me going, I've already heard it's going to be massive. Is it true? Uh, should we come over? You know, lo- lots of that those kind of calls where you go, oh my God, I think I'm about to be part of something amazing. And I think, as I say, it actually created... Um, a, a, a new genre within the genre, in a way. Yeah, absolutely, because it took the values of a West End musical and applied them to opera. So normally in opera, you've got the singers sing, and if you need some movement, you've got dancers dancing around the singers. So the singer's in the parked position, as it were, and the dancers are creating the physical movement. In Julius Caesar, I was basically doing a choreographed dance routine while doing choreography with my voice as well. So it was... Um, it was something people hadn't really seen in the same way. It's a little bit more normalized now because of Julius Caesar. So yes. this was a landmark production. And of course, after a show like that, when people experience something they haven't seen before, that becomes a gimmick in and of itself. So, you know, I remember seeing a headline of myself in, in, in French newspapers was like, La Soprano qui danse, the soprano who dances. And, and I remember reading that and I was both flattered and also I kind of thought, God, I hope people don't think that I'm going to be this sort of like, open the box and wind her up and she gets out and, and dances, you know, and sings at the same time because it wasn't the only thing well, there is that sense, I suppose, that I of do. people thinking, what is she going to do next? Sing from a trapeze? Yeah, and they want to but see that. But here with you know? this role, which is the complete polar opposite. Well, exactly, and that's what There's I kind of love about dance, it. There's no yes. No dancing at all, and no, and barely any movement. I mean, the movement is a movement of mind, and um, it's something that I bring, I bring into all my work. So I would have brought that into my work with Julius Caesar, and I think people were blown away by the movement, but there were some incredibly still moments in Julius Caesar that just broke your heart. It broke our hearts. And um, it made the jubilant moments just even have more impact because of that. And it's really amazing to think that there was only one set on that Julius Caesar. One set, not even a set change. And yet people, after four and five hours of Handel, were going, oh, I could have stayed there all night. And that, that was the joy of it. But that the elements of what, are in me as an artist were, were there too in, in that Cleopatra. And of course, as an artist, you kind of plant these seeds and they grow and they, they grow exponentially and you change and you grow as an artist. And um, I'm sure that someone who would see me now would go, oh, this has evolved so much compared to then. Um, La Voix Humaine is... Oh, God, it's just one of my favorite pieces in the world. And that was my very first performance for a live audience. Yes, you have actually filmed this. In many ways, you start by performing before an audience come to film, but you've kind of done it back to front. Well, yeah, and that was a result of the pandemic. Uh, The pandemic locked us all away. And um, it was my mom who was on the phone with me from America. And I remember her saying, you know, we're all going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, and she was saying, well... You know, isn't that piece La Voix Humaine? Isn't, hasn't your whole team been saying that's such a Danny piece and you have to do that? Isn't that only one person in the cast? Why don't you make yeah, that? What a great idea. I literally <laughs> said to her. That? Well, that's literally <laughs> what I said. I said, Mom, you are a genius. And we got to developing, we basically said about developing just this idea from a phone conversation. And as I say, it's a very sedentary performance. Everything's happening in and around sort of the solar plexus. Nothing between you and the audience. I wonder what you must have felt performing at that kind of level of intensity. And this is something that happens for 45 minutes with a few bars rest. Perhaps you can stand or sit, but that's it. And all in French. Yes. 
it's incredibly demanding, apart from anything else, um, uh, just mentally, apart yeah. from the physical challenge of that. Yeah, it was... Um, when I started the film, you know, what I wanted to do is a film that happened to be an opera. I saw the cinematic qualities of this piece and I thought, if we saw this up close, my God, what would it be like? Um, and what was great is we were able to achieve that. The lens is excruciatingly close. Um, so there is nowhere to hide um, in the film. And there's, and also when you're only one person on a phone call, there's nothing the director could cut away to. You can't sort of cut to someone else. So there are these long takes, you know, all, I sang them all live. But I had no idea how a live performance with an audience would go. I just had no barometer as to how I could imagine it was going to go and also when you do a performance for an audience there's natural part that leans outwards to express but in La Voix Humaine you actually have to draw everybody inwards and this was this was just an incredible journey that we all took together on Friday and this with the is public. a woman who is um, deeply disturbed emotionally um, physically by experiences that she's gone through um, in the recent past. A phone call with her ex-lover. I noticed that when you got to the end of it and the last note sounds everything is finished, there must have been about five to ten seconds of complete silence from the audience. Yeah. Before they then, before it, you know, then it, oh my God, you know. Yeah, so it that was, was an extraordinary moment. It was know. totally extraordinary for me on stage and for the orchestra. Everybody in a piece like that, you have to be incredibly alert. So every player has to be tuned in to me and to, to Jaime Martin, our maestro, because in a piece like that, Jaime and myself, we become like a one gliding being because we've got to breathe together and the anticipation has to happen together and the punctuation has to happen together. Um, one thing that was quite useful was in the film, I felt that I really couldn't make it without writing the entire male dialogue. So I wrote really an I, entire... This is your perception. Yeah, this is me. This, I did this on my own. I, I said, I've got to write this. And I worked with my director, James Kent, and I asked him for advice on places where... There are places where it's quite open-ended and the man could be saying anything. And there are other places where it becomes very clear. He said this, he said that because of the way she reacts. And so um, it was quite fascinating to sort of bring that to the concert platform and go, okay, I need to hear this. I need to feel what it's like to hear someone say that. And the audience don't have that text. So it's about how to convey the emotions of what someone's saying enough so that they can feel and to, enough to speculate what, what was said, yeah. but not so much that it feels like I'm sharing it with people because it is an inward piece about a woman alone in her room. So this was the, this was the part that I just didn't know how that would go. I thought maybe I'm going to be too intimate and then they're just going to go, oh, okay, I just didn't quite understand that. It was, a, it was you know, a crapshoot, I guess you, you would know, call it, but one it of was the most amazing. Interesting things in your business, when people talk about this, it almost sounds like a hybrid of the actress soprano I've heard that used or applied to song cycle stuff it's very yeah. obvious within the theatrical context of an opera but it can reach across many different kind of genres but in this particular instance I thought there was almost no distinction between the actress and the soprano oh, at all they completely so merged great. I'm, you know, that's incredible feedback and um, yeah it felt like that it felt like 
there were so many decisions that had to be made as well between how much to sing and whether I needed to sing it even more operatically now that I was in a big concert hall. What we discovered was that the intimacy of the piece gets right to the back row. So there's no need to sort of like give more of it in order for it to be heard. It's about listening. It's a piece about listening. And the phone is such an interesting device because in in its birth, the phone was meant to be like a connective tissue that allows people to stay connected to one another to allow people to continue to feel a thread across to another person through their voice but the phone can actually be quite a separate I think it's separating can be, it can device. be quite manipulative as well yeah it can deceive we hear you very often hear people talk about their phone voice and I remember if it's a member of the family or someone we know really well the number of times that we know exactly who they're talking to without right. knowing who it is exactly sort of pick up of the uh, attitude and intonation, but this we know nothing of. This I know. is uh, well. That's the that's the beauty of a piece like that is you can understand a lot by looking at a person's even their facial muscles, how they tense up or they relax when they go, oh hi, or they go hi, yes, mm, uh huh, and you go right, who's that? Because you don't. They they have a, a, a level of tension. It was completely amazing, and I, I feel very privileged to have been able to do that for the first time. I do want to move on to the difference now between that and, say, a, a work. I'm thinking of Mozart now, where yeah. that's where we first, really, the world discovered you at the Met. Uh, some years ago was Barbarina in The Marriage of Figaro with the most incredible cast I at the know. time. And that was your debut <laughs> Renee there. Fleming, Cicilia Bartoli, Bryn. It's, it's incredible. What an opportunity. And you certainly grabbed it. So I'm always thinking that with you, Mozart must be a beacon of one kind or another. And there's nothing more joyous or more Mozart, I feel, than this uh, wonderful motet written at the age of only 17. God, I know, isn't it? Isn't it stunning? Um... And it's one of the things I kind of love about Mozart is that if there is a God, which, you know, I, I'm quite religious, but it, to me, it feels like God's own music. If, if God has his own music, this would be it. I've never heard a note of Mozart that I ever wanted to change or trade in for something else or rewrite. He just um, has this ability to be touching, exuberant, perfect. And that's a really loaded word, perfect, you know, because it makes it feel like it, it it can lead you to think that that means that it just sits in one way always because of its perfection. But actually, it's such a, Mozart's music to me is such a breathing, living being that it really changes in every body, in every person's body, so in every musician's body. And, the, and within this perfection, you can move and you can it's malleable it's changeable it can you know and that is kind of perfect about it is that you could you could hear like a movement of a piano concerto at one tempo and think that is just the way I want to hear it and then you could hear it completely differently and it somehow achieves the same effect and that's a very magical tool because not every composer works in any which way but Mozart is very difficult to butcher it as it were he seems a force of nature completely. no matter what because actually when we look at Mozart's short life um, a lot of it was constrained, but he always managed to seem to negotiate his way around, whether yeah. it was from his father, Colorado in Salzburg at the beginning of his career, yeah. or illness and the circumstances and, yeah. and the poverty and all the highs and lows of that. But yet there is still this driving force and this joy. And yeah. Exultati Jubilati seems to me to sound exactly as it's written. 
Yeah, and I've sung the piece since I was probably about 12. Um, so I know the piece like the back of my hand, and yet it has evolved with me as I've grown. Um, it certainly has a very different feel to it now as a grown-up artist than it did when I was 12, but Mozart is an incredibly good exercise. I mean, I mean between singers, we always know that the, the, the saying is, is that no matter what roles you sing, if you can sing Mozart, then you're in good vocal health. If you can't sing Mozart, you know, you have to That's your monitor. Think. Yeah, Mozart is your barometer. It's your monitor. It's your litmus test. And um, uh, and it's also quite difficult to sing Mozart, and people struggle with I it. I when we talk about vocal athleticism, and actually, excellent, Hattie, you've a very good example. In fact, something that was written by yeah. one of the leading castrato of the day. Today, it is the province of the soprano. Yeah. But uh, I, I understand that he really, um, uh, Valencio Rossini, for whom it was written, he was fascinated by his vocal athleticism. Yeah, well, I mean, that third movement of the of the the Alleluia, which is, you know, it's meant to be exuberant and beautiful. It'll be really interesting. We're going to rehearse it today. Um, my voice is not the size that it, that it was when I was younger. And so, um, you know, to move through those coloratura notes will be... It will just be fascinating to see how it feels. So even as a young singer, you talked a lot at the time about vocal development and the embracing of the changes of the voice. And mm. you assume that these are things that only happen at the extremes of life, at the extremes of a career. But in fact, that's not the case. It's as if the voice certainly for you is a constantly changing um, instrument in terms of subtlety that you want to embrace and, and employ yeah you have to and, and the thing is the voice does change and grow and it takes different turns and it it has its own vocal destiny and its own color destiny mm. that you know James Levine told me that actually he told me that in my very early 20s and my parents were there they and he was going this voice is going to take a turn at this stage but uh, it's, it's not that's not going to be it it's going to do another turn I think because you know you can hear a voice and go, this is where it's going to land, but I think it's going to go via this route and this route. And he, he was amazing to sort of make that kind of prediction, but that's exactly what has happened. Um, it means that um, you have to be, it's quite a gauntlet navigating all of that when mm. it comes to scheduling and choices of roles. And family as well. And all those well, sure, yeah, there's family, a family, of course, but I mean, I, I guess I'm speaking in terms of um, how do you choose a role for four or five years' time when you don't know where your voice will be in four or five years' time? So this is the gun. Well, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I was asked, for example, when I did my first bel canto, I was asked five and six years ahead of time, and I had to say no a few times because I wasn't really quite sure that I could. And then when I felt that we were, you know, with my voice teacher and my coaches, we felt we were ready to sort of embark on it. Then we could go to the managers and say, okay, I think this is around the corner do go ahead and say yes to that. Well, your, and then, instincts, you know. your instincts always <laughs> seem to have been uh, pretty well on the button. I just want to touch on that because we could head down that line, <laughs> but I want to just touch, um, if we may, on the third of this residency, which yes. I think in a way, for uh, all sorts of personal reasons, must be uh, the choice that's closest to your heart. And I'm talking about the Ravel um, Scheherazade. And there are many interpretations of this uh, through mm. history and literature, and very notably Rimsky-Korsakov, which That's we've right. heard here several times, actually, over the last few years. Oh, but I'm not aware of this song cycle having been programmed. And oh, wow, I know, that's great. I know that, uh, that, that this is something that you particularly love. Yeah, I've been hankering after this piece for pretty much the better part of... 
my whole life. So I would mm. say since I became aware of it in my late teens, then I was sort of immediately fascinated by the character of Scheherazade. Um, and um, uh, Ravel, I've also had a long relationship with because I did, when I was 22 or 23, what I think it was, I came back to the Met after I'd finished the Young Artist Program there to sing the title role in L'Enfant Les Sortilèges with Levine. Um, incredibly young to sing that role at the Met. Um, but... I absolutely adored it. And I and I fell in love with Ravel really at that time. Um, and I also did other things in New York with him, like the Three Poems of Mallarmé, which is a Ravel chamber piece with a small ensemble. So I really started to absorb the French style of singing. And it's a style I truly enjoy uh, discovering with other musicians, with We're my also fellow colleagues. We're talking about a twist here of late impressionism, which means there's a, there's always a bit of darkness uh, just under the surface. Absolutely, you're completely right. I mean, this this is not the Debussy style of French, so it's mm. not a sort of uh, Monet-like landscape here. This is a very, um, I think, quite alluring. I think incredibly intriguing. I, I when I listen to Scheherazade, I feel like I'm seeing somebody but I'm also kind of going through a, a tempting tunnel that I don't know where it's going to lead me it might lead me to the cave of treasures it might lead me lead me to a cliff edge there um, many different impressions <laughs> of her and in fact I used to always say 101 Arabian Nights no it's not it's a thousand, thousand and, one. and one that's a lot of storytelling but she exactly. is literally telling talking and in this case singing to save her, her life, life. yeah <laughs> Exactly. Um, she was able to, uh, it was also to save her life and that, and that of, I think, her sister. She took the, her sister's place um, to save her and then basically had to keep this king interested in the storylines in order to buy herself another day of the sun going up and coming to rest. And the, it went on and on. Like, I think at the end of it, he'd fallen in love with her there and they got married. And, and so she lived. She, she, she saved herself. And actually within the songs, because I should explain about this song cycle, it's three songs. Uh-huh. So it's three, but very complex songs. And in a way, they mirror Scheherazade's story themselves. La Flute en Chante yeah. tells of um, a young slave girl, I think, who's kind of putting her master to bed but outside the window is her lover playing magnificently on the flute and this distracts her it's nearly it's a story within a story yeah and it's I always think of it as like a story of her her Mm. her life in the thousand and one nights of trying to placate this person and but but actually her imagination is so powerful to be able to spin these stories in the first place which you know for there might be a few people who might need to remember that at things like Simbad and Ali Baba and the 40 yeah. Thieves and Aladdin, these are all Scheherazade's stories. Yeah. They're stories we know so automatically, but this is what what this young, uh, in, you know, the, the ingenuity that she exercised with her brain to to spin these incredible fantasies. Um, and in fact, the first piece of the, the, the Scheherazade is is. Beautiful. She talks about Asia and wanting to explore and go to unknown lands and territories and see the different kinds of people that inhabit these worlds. Oh my God, it's incredible! And the way Ravel, you know, I always think of Ravel as a very um, he. There is to me no better composer at composing the sound of a landscape. Mm. So when it comes to L'Enfant, to compose through instruments the sound of nature, it, it is. 
world class second to none, no one better. Similar with Shahrazad, you really, when you are going with her, with her imagination through the idea of going to Asia and the Orient and 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 seeing these different characters, different types of people she's never met before, the dark side of people and the bright side of people, you really hear it. It is so picturesque the way that Ravel can conjure up those colors. I I'm, I mean, actually, I feel like going off to sing it right now. It's so exciting. It is true, but I think when I think of Ravel, like my favorite piece of piano music of all time is Gaspar de la Nuit. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's like falling into a vortex. Yeah, it's, well, that's it's Ravel. Not, yeah. it, just, it is like falling down a spinning hole, you know. It's, yeah. it's uh, unescapable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it sucks you in. Really, like a vortex. It, that's what it feels like, and I feel like that when I when I sing Ravel. So it will. Well, I've never sung it for a live audience, uh, so I will be so so excited to perform it. Well, now's the chance to uh, for us all to sort of share in that. But uh, before you leave us, because you're so generous with your time that I can't believe it goes so quickly. But but uh, I just wanted to say that um, I remember watching an interview, I think it was with David McVicker, about you at the beginning of your career, as this phenomenon that had arrived on the scene. And it was if he could see very clearly into the future with you. And he said, I can't wait to see, one, how she's going to develop vocally. That interests me enormously mm. as she goes on. But he said, even more. I mean, these weren't the exact words, but it was what he was telling us. He said, even more. The kind of subjects that she is going to choose to embrace in the future. Mm, and uh, you've certainly delivered on that. I just wonder what's ahead, or maybe you don't even know, you know. I because mean, it's as if you're just yeah. warming up. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool, actually, to think of it that way. Yeah, I mean, there is, um, yeah, horizons open up, mm. new horizons and new collaborations. I mean, what... One of the things when you get to this stage in your career is, is that there's lots of beautiful people you get a chance to collaborate with. And you can actually push the boat out a little bit mm. and you can go, you can go, let's do La Voix Humaine in concert and get a chaise long. You know, you can kind of like, you can um, test unknown waters. Mm. And especially when you have a beautiful crowd like here, I mean, it's a very beautiful place to do new work to, you know, I was just talking today about perhaps perhaps orchestrating a Greek song cycle and and doing that here for the first time. You know, um, I think that as much tradition as we have in classical music and as much respect as we have for it, it always does evolve and change based on who's performing it. And that's, that is the beauty of, for example, that a, that a countertenor premiered Exultate Jubilate and in this century, sopranos mm-hmm. have taken on and God knows who'll take it on in the next century. And, you know, we live in, you know, gender fluid times. There'll be all different things that might open up. For all you know, I might be singing, uh, you know, Don José. You know, I don't think I'll be singing Don José. But, I love the but, idea <laughs> of the Nordic, the Nordic landscape sounds great. Yeah, I mean, this Greek song cycle, I, I was, it came to me this morning and I and I thought... Oh, that's a really good idea. So, you know, there's lots of things that yeah. um, that you can do with music that, that give it a, a different color, a different life, and it doesn't compromise its traditional core values. So, um, yeah, I think there'll be lots of different things. And I'm also looking at musicals and, you know, th- these are things that embrace a lot of my different skill sets that I've grown up with. Yes. Um, in fact, it was here in Ireland that I did a concert that was an entirely classical first half and it miked musical theater second half and that was um that you know was, that was a banger in the sense that you just 
I don't think I, none of us could believe that it. it was like seeing two concerts for the price of one yes, because we just I remember it. We were there. You, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just you know, uh, yeah. I think that I think so many different types of music can co- coexist. So it was wonderful to well, do. Well, I think it's great. We're sort of back to where we began with the, that idea of a residency and what that brings. All these different ways of working and so on. But it, it's been um, it's been great for all of us, I think, to go through that journey uh, with you over this last two weeks. And um, I'm sure you must feel that it's kind of the completion of a circle. Mm, yeah, I do. Um, it's a it's to come back in this way where you know I'm getting to spend a lot of time here. Is, it's really really special for me. And the the first time that I've really taken on a residency of this type, um, and I've learned a lot, and it's given me lots of amazing ideas. And that's really what that's what we do this for we do this for creative inspiration so you're only as good as the people you collaborate with and um i've been incredibly fortunate to collaborate with so many wonderful musicians the the gang here with the orchestra and Jaime, i mean they are That's incredible wonderful. and um so i hope we do lots more together let's do that and uh, another residency you got it. <laughs> Maybe three weeks next time. <laughs> Daniel, Denise, thank you so much for giving us uh, uh, so generously a great deal of your time, actually, when you're uh, rehearsing and very, very busy. So uh, it, it's, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you. And thank you. To, uh, thank you for having and me. And as I say, on. to share this journey. For me as well. <laughs>